Romans chapter 10. Verse 1, if you need a Bible, raise your hand nice and high. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, meaning below the earth, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you. that we have at our fingertips this word which your word says is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. If we come in here with dull hearts, uh, this two-edged sword can, uh, can, can do surgery and, and make our heart alive and leave its dullness and and become alive to you if, if our heart is deeply grieved and grieved discouragement. This word can come in and, 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 and do its surgery, this double-edged sword, and, 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 and Lord, make us go from discouragement to a place of encouragement. Lord, if our hearts are filled with excitement and joy, this word can Come in and, and do surgery, this double-edged surge, surgery on our heart to, to make the joy just purer, greater. And you focus, focused on you. And Father, and so that's why we're here this morning. We are praying in Jesus' name, Lord, that you would do surgery on our hearts by your spirit, through your word. And Lord, we, we pray, Father, um, for the spirit just to be the master of the surgery. And I, I just pray that in our church and every, and also every church in the Boston area today, Lord. Be glorified in your people. Show yourself to us, Lord. We need it. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you may be seated. If you studied world history in college, now I was a history major, or if you studied it in, in high school, you may have learned about the period known as the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages. The Dark Ages uh, was a period of history roughly from the year 500 A.D. to 1500 A.D., a thousand years. A thousand year period, it was called dark for a number of reasons. But one of them was that the light of the gospel, which the Bible, the gospel just means the good news, the good news in the Bible, the light of the truth of the Bible had been darkened. It had been greatly darkened. The Roman Catholic Church in the West and the Orthodox Church in the East had created an unbelievably complicated system of man-made traditions and religion that overshadowed, that darkened the truth of the simplicity of just a, a, a simple love-based relationship with the risen Jesus Christ, a relationship in which a man or woman truly experiences Jesus promised that if a man or woman comes to him, the burden of life, the burden of religion, that is man's attempts to get to God, would be carried by him and not them. And that they could simply, with a liberated spirit day to day, live with him in a love relationship. All that for a thousand year period had been, had the, the, which this Bible is full of it, but man, as we do, managed to just darken the whole thing and complicate it. The dark ages cast a shadow, a dark, dark shadow on the Bible. But then in the early 1500s, a man came along by the name of Martin Luther. And more than any other man, Martin Luther was used by God to lead the world out of the dark ages. When he was about 20 years old, he was in a violent, terrible lightning storm, and in the middle of it, he made a vow to God. God, if you get me through this storm, I will become a monk. And he survived. And he made good on his vow, and he became an Augustinian monk. That was just one of the orders of, of monks at, at, at the time, and moved into a monastery and at that monastery, the Augustinian order to become a monk, he took a vow, a number of vows upon entering it. One was a vow of chastity, no sex for life. 
took another vow of uh, obedience, meaning obedience to the mon- monastic rules, the rules of life that they had. More on that in a little bit. He took a vow of poverty, meaning he gave up for life owning anything in order to be a part of this monastery. Upon entering the monastery, every day he was required to, par- required to participate in worship sessions which started at 2 a.m. They lasted 45 minutes and were repeated seven times throughout the day. Just 45 minutes of of prayer and sort of chanting, singing, if you've ever heard that type of thing from, from monasteries. He went to confession Frequently, confessing his sins to a priest, often daily, for as long as six hours on a single occasion. He fasted from food and waters for day at a time regularly. Um, He writes, I almost fasted myself to death for again and again. I went for three days without taking a drop of water or a morsel of food. With prayer, Luther writes, I chose 21 saints and prayed to three every day when I celebrated Mass. Thus, I completed the number every week. I prayed especially to the Blessed Virgin, speaking of Mary, the mother of Jesus, who with her womanly heart would compassionately appease her son, meaning make her son not angry at me. But he wrote this, I was never able to find rest in my heart. Of the other monks he wrote, the more that they did, the greater their terrors were. The more he tried, the more he did for God, it seemed the more aware he became of his own sinfulness. He wrote this, Nevertheless, my conscience, meaning in spite of everything that I did, my conscience would never achieve certainty, but was always in doubt. And I would say to myself, well, you have not done this little thing correctly. You were not contrite enough, meaning you were not sorry enough about that sin. Uh, you, you, you didn't do, you, you forgot to say this thing in, in your confession. Therefore, the longer I tried to heal my uncertain, weak, and troubled conscience, the more uncertain, weak, and troubled I became. He descended into spiritual and emotional darkness. There was always something else that he needed to do for God. The more he did, there was always something else. What was Luther and those other monks, and there were monasteries all over uh, over Europe and Northern Africa at one point and, and Asia, uh, the area of Turkey, that area earlier on. What was Luther and the, uh, these other monks and really the whole world at the time so desperately striving after? Why was it that they were willing to do 
what they did. Why would Luther do these things? They wanted righteousness. They wanted to be righteous. Righteousness, what is it? Three years ago, I taught a class of new believers. All of them were uh, teenagers. There were about four or five of them, and I asked them if they had ever heard of the word righteous, and not a single one of them had ever heard it. It's because they were not from families who went to church, and they certainly don't hear that word at school today, righteous. So what does it mean? This is what it means. Here's, here's, here, this will be our working definition today. Oops. Righteousness being right with God. Being right with God. He desperately strived, almost killing himself, fasting and praying and confessing to be right with God. Being right with God. What does that mean? Can we go to the next slide? Being right with God, well, it means you're not in trouble with God. So being right with God versus being in trouble with God. The Bible says that does say that we are in a whole lot of trouble with God. It does say that. That's what Romans chapter 1 and 2 are all about. Man is in a whole lot of trouble with God. But, and so righteous means being right with God, not being in trouble with God. And, and, and he did these crazy things. And, you know, and I know, if you're like me, you read that list of those things that you just heard what Luther did, and you're like, you know, I, that's, I've, done, I've been like that. I've been in that place. Some of you may be saying, I am in that place today. So Luther, living in a monastery, desperately wanting righteousness, to be right with God, desperately not wanting to be in trouble with God. He, he knew instinctively the truth. He was in a lot of trouble with God. He was. In the year 1511, he was asked to go teach the Bible at the University of Wittenberg in Germany. He was assigned to teach the book of Psalms, and after that, the book of Romans, which is where we are today. I don't know who the administrator at that college was, at that University of Wittenberg, who came up with the assignment to Luther in Romans. They were probably thinking it was their idea. It certainly was not. It was God's idea, it was God's idea because the book of Romans uses the word term righteousness 39 times and it goes deep into what it is and how to get it. Righteousness. Being right with God. It's used seven times. Uh, even in this first 10 verses of this chapter. The book of Romans, Luther turned inside out because of this book. He would never be the same again. Neither would the world 
be the same because that man went into that book. The grave darkness, the dark ages of the church of the Middle Ages would be replaced by a church with a brilliant light coming from it. Why? Among other verses in Romans, Luther read these verses. Let's start again in verse 1 where we began this morning. Paul says in verse 1 of Romans 10, you can read along with me here, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Because they're in a lot of trouble with God. And we read... We've already seen Paul's heart for the Jewish people. We saw at the beginning of Romans chapter 9, he was so burdened for the Jewish people, he, he was a Jew, remember, that he declares in verse 2 of Romans chapter 9 that he would be willing to be condemned to hell if it means saving the Jews from hell. So great was his love for them. He says again in verse 1, my heart's desire and prayer is that they would be saved. Verse 2 says this, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. They're really excited. They have a lot of energy for God. They do a lot of things which they say is for God. They have a lot of zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Verse 2 says. Martin Luther, he had a great zeal for God but not according to knowledge. You can imagine him reading this, meaning getting up at 2 a.m. every day for uh, uh, 45 minutes of, of prayer and chanting, going to confession almost every day, sometimes for six hours, fasting regularly for three days without food or water. God did not put those ideas in Martin, Martin Luther's head. None of that was put in his head by God. They were put in his head by man, by man. They were man's ideas. They were not, like verse 2 says, according to the knowledge of God. They were man's ideas. He had a lot of zeal for God, but without knowledge. Some of you here today may have zeal for God, passion for God, but there's, you don't have knowledge of God. Verse 3, let's continue, says... For they, being the Jewish people, ignorant of God's righteousness, ignorant of God's righteousness, meaning they were living in their own dark ages, which they themselves had created. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, meaning they came up with their own definition, not God's definition, but their own definition of what makes a man right with God. It continues on, have not submitted, end of verse three, to the righteousness of God. They didn't go after the righteousness of God. They didn't do what the Bible said from Genesis to Revelation what was necessary to obtain the righteousness of God, to get out of trouble and get into God's favor. No, they, they sought to establish their own righteousness. That's what we do. 
We, we make our own rules of what righteousness is. Being right with God, not being in trouble with God. And that's, it says, that's, it says what, um, that's what the Jews did. Verse three again, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness, they stuck their head in the sand and didn't know how to obtain, get God's righteousness, get out of trouble with God. And seeking to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. And then it says in verse four, for Christ, Jesus Christ, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, this is one of those verses that's so good, it's worth going home and repeating to yourself a hundred times. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Well, what does it mean? I mean, it, it, it would be good to go know what it means before you say it a hundred times. So what does this mean? For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This means that Jesus obeyed all the law. He was sent from heaven to earth to do what no man could do. God says in the book of Isaiah, I believe, he said, no man can work my righteousness so my own arm will. He, he sent to Jesus Christ, the, God the Father, sent God the Son to earth to live and obey perfectly every single jot and tittle of the law, of God's law. And he lived it to perfection. Again, for Christ is the end of the law, verse four, for righteousness, meaning for making us right with God, for getting out of trouble with God and, and getting right with God to everyone who believes. Now skip down with me to verses nine and 10 because they're so closely connected to verse four and I think they help explain, again, if we're gonna read the, we'll read the verse 100 times, we, we need to know the verse well. So verse nine, uh, skip down to verse nine, says, says this, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Many of your translations say that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's what most translations say. And you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. You will be made righteous. Verse 10, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So you, do you see the connection between verse four and 10? Verse 10 says you believe unto righteousness, meaning you believe things about Jesus, who he is, what he did, in other words, he's the son of God. He fulfilled all the law for you. He died on the cross for, uh, for you and raised from the dead for you by believing that, not by doing anything. Uh, 
2 a.m. singing, confessing for six hours, for fasting three days without water or bread. You can't do anything to be made righteous with God. Jesus has done it all for you. Again, verse four, for Christ is the end of the love for righteousness to everyone. And that means you who believes. So Martin Luther, reading this, is stunned. He is flabbergasted and he's really angry. What is this religion that has been laid on my life? I've been killing myself, trying to be made right with God. And I'm told here that is, it, it is impossible to do that and that I only need accept Jesus in my life, believing he's the son of God, believing what he did for me. He was Stunned. He was flabbergasted and he was angry. This indescribably oppressive burden on, of religion that had been replaced, that had been placed on me and everyone around me. And so what he realized was that the religious authorities of the day were doing the same things the Jews did in Jesus' day. They are making everyone do what only Jesus can do. They're making everyone do what they can't do. They're making everyone try to do what they can't do instead of just believing, yes, Jesus, you did it for me. King Jesus, I give my life to you. Come into my life. You did it for me. He was so upset because the religious authorities were making everyone do what Jesus had already done. He did it already, and after he did it, he declared among his last words of on the cross, it is finished. What is finished? All the work, all the following of the law that was necessary for you and I to enter into an everlasting relationship with God now. It's done. After he said those words soon after, he breathed his last, he says he gave up his spirit, only person to have ever died that way. He gave up his spirit, he died. After saying, it's done, it's finished. All the work, all the following of the law, which we can't do in a thousand lifetimes ourselves. Okay, so now eventually, you can imagine what's going on as he's going through the book of Romans, Martin Luther reading this, and then he's teaching people, and basically he was, he was teaching people to become rebels, which they became. And this time, rebellion was a really good thing. (laughs) And this rebellion was uh, uh, was gonna destroy the darkness at the time in Europe and replace it with a brilliant light. We are, Jesus said to us, you are the light of the world. They became, they fulfilled that 
promise. You are the light of the world. They came that, became that very thing. Now, eventually, Luther made his way from the book of Romans to the book of Hebrews, to the book of Hebrews. And in Hebrews 4, verse 9, oh my, one of the most glorious verses in the Bible. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. And this is one of those verses I just read. I mean, who, who needs Valium? I don't need Valium. I don't need to pop pills to, to, to relax. I just need to read Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9 and embrace it with my heart. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. Why? We're just resting in what Jesus did for us, just resting in that place. The next verse, Hebrews uh, 4, 9, and 10, says, Therefore, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased or stopped from his works. All the 2 a.m. chanting and prayers, seven times a day, gone. All the... Um, you know, the, the, the practice of confessing to a priest uh, for, for six hours at one time uh, and, always, and always thinking after, oh, I may have missed this, I did miss that, I, that was gone. Praying to three saints a day under the Virgin Mary, gone. Why? Because there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. Jesus did it all. Jesus paid, he, did, he lived it and paid for it all. And then he rose from the dead to, as an affirmation to the whole world for all history that everything he did was true, everything he said was true, and that everything he said is for you. So man, hey man, man, woman, talking to you, please, I beg you, stop slavishly working your way to God. Stop it. I speak this, by the way, to my own heart. Believe what Jesus has done and rest. The next verse in Hebrew says this, verse 11 says this, let us therefore be Diligent mean work really hard to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Do you know anxiety is disobedience? Do you know being stressed out is disobedience? Never let anyone tell you. I was at a Bible study years ago where they're like, oh, anxiety, it's natural. You're not sinning. Wrong. It's a natural response that can be very useful in, in certain contexts. But, 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 but for the most part, it, the Bible calls it disobedience. That's what this is talking about. Lest, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Why is that sin? Why is that disobedience? Because it is so dishonoring for what Jesus did for me. It's so, it, 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 it's turning away, turning 
off, turning my eyes off of Jesus and, 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 and that man who was hanging on the cross for me. And then, and then, and then it's also turning my eyes off of the empty cross. He, he got off the cross and then he, he was resurrected and ascended into heaven. It, it's taking my eyes off of that and, and it's on, onto everything else that is causing anxiety, that does nothing but disrupt my, my relationship with God. Again, this verse says, you must be diligent. You must work on keeping that rest. That sounds kind of crazy, right? I must work to make sure I don't work. That's what the verse says. I must work to make sure I don't work, but it's absolutely true because though we may wake up in the morning and read our Bibles, and I hope you all are doing that. If you, if you haven't made that a practice in the morning, you gotta start. But we can make up, wake up in the mornings and, and read our Bibles and have the grace of God just poured into us as we read. But the moment we walk out the door and, and go to work, school or whatever, there's a thousand voices trying to suck that grace of God right out of us. And, and, and what, how does that happen? Well, we, we mess up bad in some way, somehow. We, we say something, we do something, we think something, and then there's a voice come in that says, you gotta work your way back to God after that one, and you lose your rest. And that's why the verse says, can we have it again? It says, we gotta work hard. We gotta be diligent to enter that rest. And this is like an everyday thing. We gotta work hard at keeping that rest. Jesus did all the work. So let's read now verses six through eight because uh, verses six through eight is just a great picture of this very thing. In verses six through eight, uh, it, uh, there's a quote now from the Old Testament. Paul is quoting Moses in Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is a book, it's the fifth book of the Bible, and it's everything that Moses said at the very end of his life to Israel when they were just about to go into the promised land. They had, dis they had been delivered from Egypt, they'd been 40 years in the wilderness, they're right on the other side of the Jordan, and Moses gives a series of five messages, and that's what the book of Deuteronomy is about. And what, what Moses says in the book of, of Deuteronomy is quoted um, right here. Uh, it, it says in, in verse six, it says, but the righteousness of faith, well, let's back up, verse, verse five says, Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, meaning a kind of righteousness which uh, we get by following the law. And, and, and Moses says what? He says, the man who does these things shall live by them. Verse six says, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, meaning who will go up into heaven. That is to bring Christ down from above. Verse seven, or who will descend, go down into the abyss, meaning go down into the lower parts of the world. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? 
It says the word is near you, it's in your mouth, and it's in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. And so what he is saying here is that when, when, we, when we go out, when we leave our house and we get into the world and we mess up in some way, we, we do something, we, we look at something we shouldn't have or, or we say something we should, and, and there's those voices coming in say, whoa, it's going to take a while before you can go back and go to church or go back into God's presence and pray. You're going to have to work. You're going to have to climb up to heaven to get Jesus to get to come back to you, to get right with you. No, 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 don't do that. Verse 6 says, the righteousness of faith speaks this way. Don't say in your heart who will go up into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. You don't have to do that. Or you may have another voice after you mess up bad. And by the way, that's the story of our lives, <laughs> messing up. James says we stumble in many ways every day. And so we stumble in another way, and there's a voice coming in, oh boy, are you going to have to go dig some ditches for God in order to get right with him again? And that is what verse Seven says, who will go down into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Meaning, you know, that, that, that sense of, I'm just going to have to find uh, Jesus in my works. Digging ditches, whatever. Speaking figuratively there. Verse eight says, what does it say? Here's what, here, here's what the truth is. The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. And what is the word of faith? It's Christ has done everything. The word of faith is Jesus' last words on the cross. It's done. You can't do anything. Yeah, you just messed up bad. Just remember 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you of all, right, all unrighteousness. And then you just walk on. You walk on into your day. And then you stumble again. There's voices again. You, you, you put them off. And you remember Romans chapter 10. I'm not going to try to get up to heaven, uh, reach up, s scale a wall. You know, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to have to scale a wall. You know, we don't have to scale the walls of a palace in order to get to God after, after we've messed up or before we ever even know God. No, no, we, we, all we need to do is walk right through the front door every single time, after every single time that we do bad and we violate this book. We, 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 we can go right through the front door and the only password is, and it's not a password, this is right there in the Bible, it says you're, Thank, forgive me, God, I'm so thankful that, Lord Jesus, what you did on the cross for me, you can walk right back into the throne room. Do you realize what it cost him, Jesus, for that front door to be burst open, an iron stake through his right hand? an iron stake through his left hand, an iron stake through his feet, a thorn, a crown of thorns 
on his head. This is an everyday thing. Luther says his number one verse that influenced him the most was Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Actually, it was verse 17. But the verse before it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, meaning the good news. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God, and what does righteousness mean? It means getting right with God or being right with God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Meaning those who are right with God will live by faith. Meaning, man, when you mess up bad brother, sister, friend, you can't work your way back. You gotta go back by faith. And I love here how it says God is revealed from faith to faith. And, and the idea is you need to go from faith to faith to faith to faith to faith. And the more that you go from faith to faith to faith to faith, and the less you go from faith to faith to works, to works to works to faith, to works to faith to works to works to works to works to faith, to the place where it's to faith to faith to faith to faith, the more that you experience Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, that rest. There is a rest that remains for the children of God. Okay, we'll pick it up in the next verse next week. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up at this time. And we're just going to close in a time of worship, in a time of prayer. If you've been asked to pray, if you could come up at this time as well. If you've been asked to pray. So as, if you could stand now, we'll, we'll say a, a closing, we're going to sing a closing worship song before we close the service. If there's anything that has stirred in your heart today, maybe your heart, in the opening prayer, we talked about that scalpel, that surgery to the heart. Maybe your heart has just been pricked. It's been, the, the, the word of God just has been doing surgery and you realized you don't know the rest. You don't know this rest. You've been fretting and worrying and stressing about getting out of trouble with God. And you've been working, you've been pounding your head like Luther did for years, pounding your head on the wall, pounding your head on the ground, trying to be good enough or do enough to get that righteousness, that being right with God, that getting out of trouble with God. Number one, maybe you've never come to the place in your life You've never come to the place in your life where, like Luther, you said, I got it all wrong up to this point. I realize, I realize that Jesus did it all on the cross for me. He lived for me, and he died for me, and he rose from the dead for me. I believe it.
Remember, maybe you've never declared that with your mouth and believed that in your heart, but today the light turned on and it's happened, if that's you. And you would like to just have us pray alongside of you to affirm what God is doing in your heart or where he's done today. Come on up. Or you may have done that in the past, but oh man, has the peace of God escaped you? Come up for prayer. I'm going to close in prayer and we'll worship and if you'd like to come up, you can come up. Father, we thank you. We thank you for those that marvelous that marvelous prayer, Lord. There remains a rest for the people of God. And Lord, how we need your, your grace to keep our eyes fixed upon you, fixed upon that promise. Father, we want to enjoy you. You created us to glorify you and enjoy you forever. But we're our own worst enemies, Lord. We don't enjoy you because we take our eyes off of you. And we forget we become ignorant, as it says in Romans, chapter 10, verse 3, of your righteousness, meaning that Jesus did it all. He paid it all. He did it all. He lived it all. <clears throat> Father, continue your work now. Bring us to that place of rest and worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.